6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Monarchy of Israel. You know, Christians are always sort of at a quandary what to do about Halloween. I love what Pat Patriciana, President of Jeremiah Film, said one time. He says, asking a Christian to celebrate Halloween is like asking a Holocaust survivor to celebrate Hitler's birthday. We do always have a problem around that season because the kids want to do something, and yet we're not trying to encourage the witchcraft. I'm very intrigued that in the state of Washington, one of the school districts there canceled Halloween because it was unfair to the witches to promote such a stereotype of Wicca and so forth. Boy, I can think of a lot of reasons to cancel Halloween, but that takes the cake. But in any case, one of the things that gets our attention, of course, is the strange issue of the Witch of Endor. And one of the suggestions I'm going to make is that it could make a very interesting play for high schoolers or teenagers to put on, because you've got the text in the Bible. We had a contest many years ago of who could write the best play that was biblically accurate and you know, attractive as a piece of entertainment and so forth. And uh, we had Frank Peretti and a number of others uh, judge the entrance, and we took the top four, and they're available from our office for the asking for those that want to take on a project like this. But in any case, the Witch at Endor, a very strange event, because um, it's all in desperation, to, because you can't get hold of Sam. Samuel's passed away, and he's so used to having someone to talk to. He needs to talk to Samuel. And so even though Saul has made witchcraft illegal, wiped them all out, he knows there's someone, there's still an underground, and he gets his men to, they know there's a witch, apparently a medium down at Endor. So he goes, he goes in disguise down there. And when Samuel comes up, she's shook. So what's going on isn't what she's used to. People argue, well, who was it really? Uh, I believe it really was Samuel. And it's interesting that Saul doesn't see Samuel. He only hears it. Because Samuel says before he dies, when he, when he upset with Saul about Agag, he says, You'll, you will see me no more. And if you read the text carefully, I believe he just, he hears. Samuel comes up, but the, he hears him. He doesn't really see him. In any case, the witch, of course, is shook because she, then she realizes something's going on. She suddenly realizes that he's the king and so forth. But Samuel predicts to Saul that tomorrow you'll be with me. It's a very, very spooky scene. Many people argue about the details, but uh, it makes a very, very interesting uh, thing to dramatize, particularly around uh, Halloween, sort of the spirit of the, the, the time. But let's go back to the, the monarchy. Uh, Samuel and Saul, of course, is first Samuel. Uh, David in the second Samuel. And so in the second book of Samuel, d starts to talk about David and his triumphs. He is picked as the king of Judah. When, you see, when Saul is dead, uh, the, 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 the time is open. He's actually been anointed by Samuel long before. But, and David had several opportunities to kill Saul. He would not, because he's still God's anointed as far as David's concerned. It's a very colorful event when uh, Saul happens to be sleeping in a cave and didn't know that that was a cave that David was hiding in. And David, while he was sleeping, cut off the hem of his garment. The next day from the top of the hill, he shows that he could have 
Saul's pretty shook. Why the hem of the garment? Because the hem is where all the authority is. So we have authority on the, on the a sleeve, typically, on the military or on the shoulder or something. In those in ancient Israel, it was on the hem. The hem had the genealogy, had the authority, etc. That's why he cut the hem off. He cut, it, cut off his... In fact, he later, uh, even David repented of doing that. That's why the, the woman of the issue of blood wanted to touch Jesus, the hem of his garment. The hem was where the, in the sense of the authority. Anyway, whole study about hems you can undertake. But at Hebron, he's picked as the king of Judah. That's just the tribal picture so far. He rules at, for seven years as, as the head of Judah. At Jerusalem, he will be picked also the king of the whole nation, king of all Israel. His identity with Judah never goes away, of course. In fact, later on with the civil war, the northern tribes take the, a different tack with Ephraim as the spokesman for the north. But anyway, he's, at this point, uh, David is the king of all of Israel. He reigns that way for 13 years. But he has troubles in his family and in the nation. And the last part of the second book of Samuel details all this. And obviously, uh, he's accepted by the king over all Israel because of the human kinship. We are bone and, and uh, of thy bone. We are of thy bone and thy flesh. He also is picked because of his proven merit. Thou ledest out and broughtest in all Israel. These are all the accolades they're giving him when they pick him as to head up the whole thing. Also, he's a divine warrant. The Lord said unto thee, Thou shalt be captain over Israel. The word captain there is the top leader. We think of captain as a company grade rank. No, it's a, here the term is top guy. But when you get to 2 Samuel 7, it's one of the most important chapters in your Bible. You want to be very sensitive to this, because 2 Samuel 7 affects everything that follows. Not only in the scriptures, in the history of mankind. This is the divine confirmation of the throne in Israel. And this has more to do with than just Israel alone, because this will ultimately be the throne from which the entire planet Earth will be ruled. God there declares the perpetuity of the Davidic dynasty. Now, do you know anyone that is a direct descendant of David? Only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, the Davidic dynasty is declared through perpetuity. And something else is that the Davidic covenant is unconditional. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional. The Davidic covenant also is unconditional. Very important point, because this has messianic implications. This is crucial not just because of the governance of the nation. It, it's critical because it leads to the whole, backstops the whole concept of the Messiah that started in Genesis chapter 3 and climaxes with the marriage supper of the Lamb and so forth in Revelation 19. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting verse 11, The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house, speaking to David. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, and I will establish his kingdom. And he, that is David's son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Davidic throne is, the dynasty is here endorsed by none other than God himself. It goes on, it says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. 
and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So his throne, his kingdom, and his house. Those are three different things, but all related. Each one is established forever. Key point. And this perpetuity is confirmed throughout the scripture. In Psalm 89, his seat also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And a few verses later, once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. And it goes on, the whole psalm, you know, goes on that. So, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of that commitment that God gave David. So here are the key points you want to remember from 2 Samuel 7. The divine confirmation of a throne in Israel. The perpetuity of the Davidic dynasty. That the Davidic covenant is unconditional. And all this has messianic implications because in Matthew 1 verse 1, the first verse of the New Testament, speaks of him as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Both are pivotal issues. When you get to Revelation chapter 5, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. One's the tribe, one's the family, but there you have it. And of course it's all the way through. I just picked a couple of checkpoints here to, to make the emphasis. So the scarlet thread continues. Remember we started with the seed of the woman? That was the race, if you will. The human race would be the means by which God was going to redeem the creation. And not just the race, but for, through the nation. It was started with Abraham. Not only the nation, but the tribe of Jacob and the family of David. So God is focusing. From Genesis 3, it's the race. And from Genesis 22, we know it's the, through Abraham. And from Genesis 49, we know it's the, the house of Jacob. And then a tribe of Jacob. And then uh, under... Uh, David, of course, we have Second Samuel. So we got, and as God focuses His revelation of how the messianic plan is going to work, that allows Satan to focus his attacks, and we'll see that all the way going all the way through. Now David was quite a guy. We tend to focus on some of his stumbles, but he was a very, very shrewd general, a very victorious warrior. And he subdues the Philistines to the west. Saul never was able to do that. The Syrians, the Hadadezer in the north. The Ammonites and Moabites in the east and southeast. And the Edomites and the Malachites in the south. So on each of the major fronts, he succeeds and subdues. Clever general. He's a man of war. In fact, that gets to him, actually, before it's all over. But in addition to being a great general, he also was a very constructive administrator. We miss that because we focus on his person and so many other things, but um, he was a very, very skillful manager. He brought just judgment and justice to all the people. That is quite a statement. That is quite a statement. 
among the many things that he organizes, one of the things you want to be very sensitive to is he organized the priesthood. The priesthood was getting very large by now. The priesthood was not all the Levites. The Levites was the whole tribe, but within that there were descendants of Aaron. But even that had quite a number. So he organized the priesthood into 24 subsets, or what they call courses. And each course officiated from Shabbat to Shabbat. Each Shabbat it would change, and there was a sequence. It's one of the rare places the number 24 occurs in the Bible. The number 24 is indicative of priesthood. That becomes a very material point when you get to the book of Revelation, because there are 24 elders sitting on thrones. So they're both kings and priests in some respects. And so there's a whole thing we'll want to get into then. The priesthood is, of course, of the tribe of Levi. The royal tribe is the tribe of Judah, and they are separate. The kings were not to intrude on the rights of the priests. That's what Saul made a big mistake that he paid for. Likewise, the, the priests were not to rule. They were priests. There's only one guy that you first encounter, at least, that's a king and a priest. That was Melchizedek. In fact, he's used idiomatically to make that very point in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 and 6. Even that would probably disappear in obscurity, except for Psalm 110, where, it's, where God promises the Messiah there, in effect, that he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not Leviticus, which was a temporary priesthood, but to be a, a king and a priest. There are only three people that are kings and priests. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, and who else? You and me. You need to understand there's a distinction there that's very, very critical. And you do want to understand who the 24 elders are when you get to Revelation 24. It's a very important identity. It's not free of controversy, but I think it's pretty clear as to who they are, because they, they tell who they are. But David, just give, going down his resume here a little bit, he not only is a victorious warrior, great general, he's also a very creative and constructive administrator, but he also is a, not just a poet, he is a major poet and songwriter. And uh, he wrote a large number of the Book of Psalms. The next session we'll be exploring some of those, get that perspective. He didn't write all the Psalms, but he wrote a, a, an awful lot of them. But David's turning point, of course, is his great sin. And one of the things we obviously need to be very sensitive to is the obvious honesty of the Scriptures. They don't paint David as having no faults. They record his successes, but they also record his stumbles and failures. We're all familiar with the story with Bathsheba. He not only committed adultery, he arranges for the murder of her husband. This is heavy stuff. And this is the king that we're talking about. And this was not a little one-night stand, a little stumble. This was the result of a process. It usually is. First of all, he was in a mode of very prosperous ease. When things are going well, watch out. When you are at the peak of your success is when you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable at two places especially, at the bottom and at the top. Both extremes are danger points. And he was prosperous. He was supposed to be at war with his troops. He's home. 
And it was not a case of him looking out the window and seeing this gal for the first time. First encounter of that kind, probably. But I mean, it was not a stranger we're dealing with here. The other thing with David, though, he was already showing signs here because he was becoming very self-indulgent. We all tend to do that. Something else to be on guard for. Accumulating wives was forbidden in Deuteronomy 17. Forbidden for kings to accumulate wives. And of course he ends up having this affair with Bathsheba. And he gets, of course, uh, confronted by Nathan, the prophet, in which he has deep remorse and repentance. To his credit, he has remorse and repentance. In fact, Psalm 51 is famous because that's David's psalm as he grieves over the sin that he is guilty of, especially the sin against God. And that's one of the reasons God can say in 1 Samuel 13, and it's also recorded in Acts 13, David is regarded by God as a man after his own heart. You know, when he says that, it's sort of startling. Because here's David, he's a sinner, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer. How can he be a man after God's heart? Because he's honest, he owns his sin, acknowledges it, repents of it. God has a lot of room for a repentant sinner. We're all sinners. That's what the whole issue is as far as our relationship with God is concerned. So that starts, though, years of suffering. Remorse and contrition did not obliterate the consequences. God may forgive you for the fornication or adultery, but it doesn't get rid of AIDS. It doesn't get rid of unwanted pregnancies. It doesn't get rid of the consequences of sin in the natural. So David's family then becomes just a whole saga of incest, fratricide, intrigues, and ultimately rebellion and civil war have their seeds in David's sin. You know, it's astonishing. People speak of victimless crimes. They speak of crimes that, you know, really have no victim. There is no such thing. Because this is a crime against anyone that loves you. It's a crime against anyone in whose love you abide. And so sin multiplies. Because of, his, of all these things, he's not allowed to build the temple. God says, your son Solomon will build the temple. David says, in effect, no problem, I'll just pay the bills. So David, most people don't realize this, David prepaid much of the cost of the temple. Not all of it. Solomon was very prosperous, too. But he actually prepaid. He really made a lot of the money. He couldn't build the temple, but he could arrange for a, a lot of the, 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 the needs. And, and Solomon's glory that follows, of course, uh, is in large measure due to uh, David's preparation for that. But there were troubles in the family. Now, something else, you know, you talk about the sword shall never depart from thy house, 2 Samuel 12. The sword shall never depart from your house, David. One of the things as you read through the, uh, the intrigues, you'll discover that there's this old character by the name of Ahithophel that's a counselor to Absalom in his rebellion against David. 
And what doesn't come through, unless you do a little bit of homework, you sort of wonder, why is Ahithophel so available to David's enemies? And you have to connect some dots here, but you'll discover if you connect the dots that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And you begin to realize that he never forgave David's violation of Bathsheba. The first son of Bathsheba, of course, dies, and then uh, there's also a loss of moral authority. Amnon raped David's daughter Tamar, another seedy episode. Absalom kills Ammon, so there's all this going on in the family. Finally, Absalom leads a rebellion against David, and he's counseled by this Ahithophel character, which the Bible doesn't make clear unless you connect the dots. You discover who was his father and who was that father, and it turns out it's the father of Bathsheba. You realize that he's the grandfather of Bathsheba. So anyway, finally Adonijah attempts to seize the kingship from Solomon, and so it goes on and on. So we've got a, a whole seedy thing here. And that leads, now we're into 1 Kings. Bear in mind, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings are 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings in the, in the Greek and in the, in the Latin. But anyway, we'll stick with the traditional one here. And the 1st Kings will close with the antics of this incredible character called Elijah. A very colorful character. The first book of Kings is, can be called really discontinuous through disobedience. They're starting to have real problems. Solomon reigned for 40 years. First book of Kings deals with the accession, the temple being built. And it's the peak of Israel's fame and glory in the days of Solomon. But he also turns apostate. We'll talk about that in a minute. And that leads to declension and, and finally decease. The kingdom finally divides because when he, Solomon finally does die, Rehoboam takes over. But Rehoboam does some ill-advised increase of taxes and other things that gives the excuse for Jeroboam to peel off in a rebellion. Jeroboam organizes the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom is called Israel. And when you're reading the Bible in this area, you need to be careful what it says Israel, whether it's talking about the northern kingdom or the nation as a whole. We tend to use the term Israel for the nation as a whole, and that's appropriate. But there's a period there where Israel, the house of Israel, was the northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim. Not, it was more than just Ephraim, but Ephraim was the, the primary spokesman tribe, if you will, of that group. And Jeroboam, of course, leads them to idolatry for a number of reasons. And as an attempt to get the northern kingdom straightened out, Elijah is there primarily ministering in the north and has some very colorful episodes. For a period of about 80 years, the divided kingdom continues there before it finally goes under. But Solomon, we talked about David. Let's talk a little bit about Solomon. He acceded the throne when he was 15 years old. Adonijah attempted to preempt, but he was thwarted by Nathan the prophet. So he doesn't, he's not able to pull it off. In fact, David, on his deathbed, instructs Solomon to clean house of a whole bunch of overdue punishments. And that would include Joab had previously murdered Abner. So David says it's time to deal with Joab. And there's also the Shimei issues and some other issues that he, he goes through a little checklist, punch list, if you will, for Solomon, and he takes the throne. And then, of course, the big event in Solomon's career is the building of the temple. And uh, the cedars of Lebanon were famous, and, and uh, they're much more attractive than the coarser sycamores that were typically available in the south. So arrangements are made. The 
Hiram is the king of Tyre up there, and he had a very close friendship with David. It was his friendship with David that really sets this all up. But something that most people don't notice is that the design of the temple was given to David by God himself. Most of us assume the temple was just Solomon's rendering in more elegant terms of the basic architecture of the tabernacle. No, it's more than that. In fact, there's some architectural features to the temple that go beyond what the tabernacle had, besides just being larger and so forth. And it's important to understand that that was God-given. I'll show you why in a minute. But this project of building the temple, the first temple as we might call it, had over 183,000 workmen, 30,000 men, 10,000 per shift in a month. Uh, 70,000 carriers, 80,000 hewers in the mountains, and over 3,000 supervisors. That's a bunch of, that was a mammoth, mammoth project of the temple. Now the architecture of the temple is worth studying. You, 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 when you look at this, you'll recognize right away it's very similar to the tabernacle in its concept. The tabernacle was 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, if we accept a foot and a half for a cubit. This is much larger much, much larger, and of course a permanent structure, not designed to be portable like the tabernacle was, which is designed for the wilderness wanderings. But the architecture is very similar. As you enter first, the first thing you encounter is the Holocaust altar, the altar or the brazen altar, except this was larger. And around it are ten lavers of bronze for the washing. There's also a molten sea, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but a huge, huge basin seven and a half feet deep and about ten feet in diameter that the priests would be able to uh, do ritual uh, cleansing in. And when you go through all that, you then enter the holy place itself, that first rectangular edifice. As you walk in, instead of a menorah, a, a seven-branched lampstand, there are ten of them in there. And then you go a little further, there are not, not just a table of showbread, but ten of them. So everything is, you know, the decimal points moved over, so to speak. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.